Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he will sustain thee. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. The Lord alone is my defense and my salvation. He is my rock. I will not be greatly moved. The Lord, whose word I praise, and the Lord I will put my trust, I will not fear what man can do to me. Before we begin, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, that we have uh, used 1 John 1, 9 for the recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit if necessary, so that we are prepared to uh, take in God's Word, to learn it, to understand it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to fellowship tonight around the teaching of your word. We pray that as we examine these things and reflect upon the scripture that is powerful and is the uh, power source in the spiritual life along with the Holy Spirit, that we might be able to see how these things apply to our lives, that we might have the objectivity from the filling of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine that's in our souls to be honest with ourselves about what the scripture says and to see how these things apply. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 8. When we ended class last Wednesday night, we were in the middle of examining the doctrine of rejection. The doctrine of rejection. Now, before we get into that and review that tonight, We need to go back and learn or review a couple of principles on adversity and stress. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances, and stress is the inside pressure uh, in the soul. Adversity is what circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you choose to do to yourself by way of your response to adversity. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Fourth, stress is always the result of sin nature control of the soul and failure to handle adversity through the gracious provision of the ten stress busters. Fifth, these stress busters allow the believer to face any situation in life and remain poised, stable, and in control of the situation no matter how horrible or agonizing the circumstances are without giving in to sin nature control. And sixth, sin nature control means that arrogance is taken over It's the operation of the three arrogant skills, uh, self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception, and it either comes packaged as overt arrogance or disguised as pseudo-humility. Now, we have a test situation. James has written to teach us how to handle tests and that it is in the handling of tests through the application of doctrine that we advance to spiritual maturity. And he is uh, in this, this first major section of the epistle, which began back in uh, verse 21. He is focusing on what it means to hear, to truly hear and listen to the Word of God. And listening involves application. Verse 22, we are to become appliers. Corrected translation there from poieo, meaning to do or to apply or to manufacture but become, from genomai, it's not prove, it is the, the verb genomai, but become appliers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And delusion is self-deception. That's the third arrogant skill. So we see how these themes run continuously through this epistle. Now, when we come down to verse 8 of chapter 2, he is using a specific mandate that was articulated in the Old Testament and is restated numerous times in the New Testament. And this is the royal law. Verse 8 reads, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, this is the principle of application. This is the principle of applying the word in a particular test situation. And the test situation involves this particular congregation... Remember, James is writing to Jewish believers scattered out in, the, in what was called the Diaspora. These are the Jews that lived outside the land of, 
of Israel. And he is writing to them and they have a problem with the rich. Now, the problem is not because they have an excess of material assets. The problem is not that they are rich. The problem is that in this particular situation, uh, it is the, the wealthy class that is antagonistic to and persecuting these Jewish believers. So on the one hand, we have Jewish Christians, and the rich very well could be the wealthier members of the Jewish community, and they have not accepted Christ as their, as their Savior. They have not accepted Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And the, these Jewish believers have accepted Jesus as Messiah. So they are coming under the uh, antagonism and hostility from the rich. They are being rejected and maltreated because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we saw in our study of the wealthy and the poor back in verse 6 that it is not the fact that they are rich that's the problem, but because they have an excess of material goods, they have become self-sufficient. They think they have satisfied life's problems and they have a handle on it because of their wealth. Wealth and an abundance of material possessions is often a distraction to people from their spiritual life. Whether you realize it or not, wealth is as difficult to test for the spiritual life. Prosperity is as difficult to test as many adversities because most of us have a tendency to just relax when things are going well and spiritual things are not quite as important and pressing as when things are going bad. When things are going tough and that adversity is really pushing us, we realize we just have to, to uh, grab hold of faith and trust God and we're continuously focusing on doctrine. But as soon as that pressure's off, that's when the test really comes. But these wealthy are not believers. So you have unbelievers rejecting believers. And you have a very uh, wrong response to this pressure by the usher, the man who uh, comes in and takes the wealthy man in and seats him in a position of honor. And in contrast, when the poor poor man comes in, the, the street person, the, the bum, the person who's uh, he, he's got bad clothes, he smells bad, hasn't had a bath in a week, but this guy is a believer and he is maltreated and placed back in the back of the church somewhere where nobody would notice him. He's a source of embarrassment. So their priorities are all out of whack. So this is the uh, case. Let's back up to our doctrine of rejection and work through it point by point. Point number one, we have the case and point here in the chapter where the rich have rejected Jesus Christ and with it the, the Jewish Christians in this area and now they are persecuting those Christians. So the issue is, how do you handle rejection? Now, rejection is one of the most difficult tests that we ever face. And most people are not, uh, are not prepared doctrinally to handle rejection. It's a very tough test. Point number two, rejection comes in many forms. Rejection means being forsaken, being attacked being ignored, persecuted, ridiculed, physically attacked, bullied, being repudiated or eliminated or simply being set aside. For example, losing a job. It can be rejection can take place in the social life. It can take place at work. Rejection can take place uh, in many different, in almost every arena in life, when something happens either actively, which is an overt antagonistic response, or passively, we're just ignored, we're not treated well, we're, we're overlooked, our opinions are devalued or ignored. Uh, those are the various forms in which uh, rejection takes place. Point number three, the natural reaction from the sin nature is to immediately react from the sin nature in terms of emotion. We give in to emotion, emotional control of the soul. We immediately focus on the fact that our feelings are hurt. Someone has said something or done something and it has hurt us and now we're reacting from the sin nature and it is our emotions that, that are in charge and we're now making decisions based on emotions and not based on doctrine. 
So the first thing that happens is we focus on the fact that we are hurt. This is self-absorption. Instead of focusing on God, who is our rock and our salvation, God alone, who is our defense, I will not be greatly moved. We are greatly moved. We react. This is the first arrogant skill, which is self-absorption. We're focusing on the negative circumstances instead of on the God who is above and beyond and has taught us how to control negative circumstances. Now, at this point, we've entered into sin nature control. Now we're out of fellowship. We're converting the outside pressure from the adversity of rejection into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. We are poised on the brink of self-fragmentation. Point number four. As the sin nature dominates, we tend to react initially from the emotion in our soul. This brings in the whole host of emotional sins, such as anger, hatred, fear, worry, anxiety. These work together as the emotional sins in conjunction with the arrogance complex of sins, and one sin compounds another sin, and before long, we've moved from self-absorption into the next level of arrogant skills, self-justification. Now we immediately think, well, that was wrong of that person to treat me that way. I'm right. Don't they understand me? Don't they realize I'm right? Don't they know that I've thought through the issue of Christianity and I'm smart enough or honest enough to come to the truth? Or why does that person treat me that way? Why are they just ignoring me? Why aren't they paying attention to me? I'm really important and I need to be paid attention to right now. So the focus now is justification, trying to excuse our behavior and justify ourselves so we feel better in light of this real or perceived rejection. A lot of problems in personal relationships are not simply the result of overt rejection, but are the result of of assumed rejection. People of today, we live in a society that is controlled by people who are hypersensitive. Somebody looks the wrong way, raises the eyebrow wrong, uses a politically incorrect term, and all of a sudden somebody has taken offense when no offense was intended. They have taken offense, their feelings are hurt, and now you start the rejection dynamic. Self-absorption plus the emotional sins then leads to self-justification and subjectivity increases. As subjectivity sets in and is compounded by self-justification, we begin to distort our perception of reality. As we go through the process of justifying ourselves in the situation, we no longer look at it objectively. We no longer look at ourselves objectively. Remember, we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. We're not operating on doctrine. We're operating on subjective feelings and subjective impressions. And so now we are in full-blown subjectivity and we're not sure what the truth is anymore. So we move from self-justification now into that third arrogant skill, which is self-deception. And we can no longer see ourselves or the relationship or the situation honestly. Now we're getting on the fast track to self-destruction. As we go through this cycle, it increases. The more self-deceived we become, the more self-absorbed we are. The more self-absorbed we are, the more we seek to justify our feelings, our reaction, our thinking. The more we do that, the more subjectivity sets in. And the less we're able to see things honestly, and we create a vicious cycle, which culminates in the entire complex of mental attitude sins. And as we give ourselves over to all of the mental attitude sins, from revenge motivation, hatred, anger, fear, worry, anxiety, this dominates the thinking of our soul And the end result is always going to be self-induced misery. This is a prescription for how to destroy the stability of your life, destroy your marriage, destroy your family, destroy your job, is become hypersensitive and start reacting every time you really are or imagine that you are being rejected. That's point number four. As the sin nature dominates, we react initially from emotion in the soul, and then we build the three arrogant skills. Point number five, 
Rejection is very complex. On the one hand, you have the person who is the rejector. In this case, we have the rich man. He's described as having fingers that are covered with gold rings, so we're calling him Goldfinger. Over here we have the rich man, Mr. Goldfinger. He is the rejector. And on the other side we have the rejectee, the Jewish believers. Now, if you're a believer and you are continually being oppressed or persecuted or ridiculed by someone who's not a believer and they're in a position of power and prestige in your company, in your job, in your uh, group, whatever it may be, in your city, town, and the natural inclination is to try to prove to this individual that you're not what they think you are. So you immediately try to resolve the problem through all sorts of different uh, human viewpoint techniques and strategies which are motivated by your own sin nature. Now, this is a case that's fairly simple. You have a rejector and you have a rejectee. And it's clear and obvious in this illustration. But not all rejection scenarios are that simple. For example, in a marriage situation, this is a very typical scenario that happens and that causes failure in many marriages. One person becomes distracted by some situation in life. Maybe it's at their job. Maybe the husband or, in many cases, the wife suddenly is in a position where they have to work more hours than they did before. They have to uh, work, instead of 40 or 50 hours, they're now working 60 or 70 hours. There's a lot of pressure at, at the work site. So they're not giving their attention at home as they had before, as they know they should, but they have to give their attention, for the time being at least, to work. Sometimes this scenario takes place in the military, with military wives, and the husband has to go away for a while. And he's sent here or he's sent there, and they don't like the fact that he's gone. Uh, this is one thing that causes many problems in military marriages. They, the, the spouse that's left behind immediately has these feelings of rejection and blames the husband. If you just got out of the military, then all these problems would be solved. It's not his fault. It's his job. Sometimes it happens when the wife has a baby. Maybe it's the first baby, maybe it's the third or fourth baby, and you've got one or two others in diapers, and her attention is completely controlled by the kids. And now he feels left out. She's having to give all of her attention to them from sun up to sundown, and even beyond changing diapers and feeding the babies, and they're running around and all of that. And when the end of the day comes, she's exhausted. And he comes home from work, and he's ready to have all that tender, loving care that he got when there were no children around. So he feels left out. Now, nobody's rejected anybody in this scenario. There are just outside pressures of life that demand attention, that distract from the other person. But what happens is this happens to one person, the other person. This person is, becomes distracted. This person feels rejected. There is no rejection taking place. But this person now doesn't have the maturity to realize what's going on and doesn't have enough doctrine to have objectivity in the soul, so this person now reacts. It may be a hostile reaction operating from the sin nature in terms of mental attitude sins, anger, fear, worry, causing uh, overt sins that go along with that and create overt problems, or it may be a passive reaction. The, uh, let's take a scenario here where the, the wife's just had twins. Now her attention's really distracted. So uh, he comes home and she's never there to spend time or run and play with him and he has free time on his hands, so he takes up golf. Or he spends a little more time at the office with his business. And now he's spending more time away and he's distracted. But he's done that as a reaction to her distraction. Now, the kids get a little older, two, three, four years go by. They're in school, and she's back to where she has time. He's not there. He's off playing golf all the time, or he's, um, not that there's anything wrong with playing golf, <laughs> or, or with work, or with working 40, 50 hours. I mean, where would doctors be if they didn't work a lot, or where would lawyers be? There's some professions that demand a lot of attention. 
But what we're dealing with here is not the overt circumstances, but it's how we respond in our soul to these situations, whether we're responding subjectively using the arrogant skills or whether we're responding objectively looking at the situation and making sure we keep our emotions under control and stabilized with doctrine. What happens, as you can see, is a boomerang effect sets into that marriage and they start heading in opposite directions and five or six years down the road they wonder who the other person is. And then you have a fragmentation of the marriage. There was no real overt, overt reaction. You can't go back and say, well, it looks like this guy did it because all she did was have the babies and stay home and now he's caved in and he's out here, as a, he's become a workaholic and it's his fault. Well, it, there's a serious dynamic going on here. Everybody's involved, and the big problem is minus doctrine. Nobody's operating on doctrine. Nobody has enough doctrine in their soul to look at the situation honestly and to head problems off at the beginning. And so one thing leads to another, and there's an internal collapse and fragmentation of the marriage, but that is preceded by an internal fragmentation of the soul by both the husband and the wife, because they've been operating on mental attitude sins and overt sins in response to a real or perceived rejection. So that's just one way in which rejection is very complex and can lead to multiple sins and self-fragmentation. Point number six. As we have seen in this illustration, rejection is often a matter of individual perception of reality. The facts may be completely different but it is not, their feelings of rejection are based on just that subjective impression and feeling and not based on objective reality. That's why rejection is one of the greatest pressures in life because in order to handle it correctly and not become self-destructive, you must have objectivity and a certain level of spiritual maturity or when the people test of rejection comes along, it will wipe you out. Remember, the only source of true objectivity and maturity is Bible doctrine. Point number seven. Reaction to rejection can include everything from being hurt, having hurt feelings, to bitterness, jealousy, vindictiveness, implacability, being, turning it inward in self-absorption and being filled with self-pity. And then all of this, of course, leads to the fragmentation of the spiritual life because now you're in operation carnality and you can either respond through the area of weakness, through personal sins, or through the area of strength and human good. And when you start responding in the area of strength and human good, then the waters really get muddy because on the outside everybody looks at the person who's in emotional reaction and they're operating on human good, and they look good. They seem to be doing everything right, so they can't be the blameworthy party. Again, we see how complex it becomes. Being hurt by rejection is a very subtle form of arrogance. Put that in your notes. Getting hurt by rejection is a very subtle form of arrogance. It is self-absorption. The rejected person often reacts with a certain self-righteous arrogance against authority. Especially if it's a situation at work where somebody says something, you get called in, you're asked to do something, or you're given some correction. It's very easy to react in uh, self-righteous arrogance and get involved in uh, antagonism towards proper authorities. This can happen in marriage, it can happen with kids in the family, it can happen at work, it can happen in any kind of situation where there's a structure of authority. The rejected person becomes deeply hurt and then starts reacting in all kinds of strange ways and that's going to vary depending on their personality, depending on their sin nature, depending on the trends in the sin nature and depending on the lust pattern that dominates their sin nature. When the rejected believer... Uh, reacts through being hurt or self-pity, through the sins of arrogance or the sins of the emotional complex, then what develops are flaws in the soul, like cracks. As these flaws continue to develop, the outside pressure of adversity creates wider and wider cracks in the soul, 
eventually leading to fragmentation. This is where you get somebody who's extremely neurotic or even psychotic and their life begins to fall apart and then the only thing they can turn to in order to find stability is drugs. Now, drugs are good to a point. You can get on drugs and they can get, restore a certain amount of stability so you can get back in Bible class and you can begin to focus on doctrine and start learning how to use the problem-solving device. But the drugs are not an end in themselves. They simply make you functional so that you can put your priorities back on the truth. But the trouble is, many people get onto drugs and they buy into the whole psychological framework that usually goes along with it. And the next thing they know, they're just satisfied with solving their problems through pure human viewpoint strategies and techniques rather than utilizing the Word of God. What happens then is that we begin to blame others. This is the function of arrogance. And we start attributing our own sins and failures to the other person who we perceive rejected us. We blame them for our failures. We slip into the victimization mentality that is so dominant in our culture. And it's never our fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And this, again, leads to fragmentation of the soul because we're operating on arrogant subjectivity and a completely false perception of reality. Now, one of the interesting sidelights in all of this, as you, it comes out, is that um, that the what I call the saccharine believer. Saccharine is a pseudo sweet. Remember, it's a sweet, sweet, a sugar substitute. So this is the saccharine believer. They're not really sweet. They're just substituting. They look good because they're operating on the area of strength. And so everybody looks, and this happens in marriages sometimes, where one person manages to cover up because they're so wonderful and they're very popular and they're loved by everybody, and yet they're the one ones who's manipulating the situation behind the scenes. Uh, and behind that facade, of that saccharine facade, they're operating on all kinds of, of arrogance, emotional sins, and very subtle, leading to the destruction of the relationship and really promoting more and more rejection. Now, we only have two options. This is about where we stopped the last time. We only have two basic options when we come under rejection. Just as when we come under any test, there are only two ways we can go. We can have positive volition and we can apply doctrine. Or we can have negative volition and try to solve it on our own terms. Positive volition is the application of the ten stress busters. Negative volition leads us right into the scenario I've described, which is operating on the arrogant skills, subjectivity, leading to emotional control of the soul and eventually emotional revolt of the soul and total fragmentation of the soul. But I want to give you some mechanics here just to show how complicated this can become and how a person can really mess their life up through sin nature control of the soul. Here's our diagram of the sin nature. We have two basic poles. The bottom area is personal sins, the area of weakness. Remember, the sin nature is not the source of sin. The volition is. The sin nature um, tempts the mind with sin. The volition has to be engaged and chooses to sin. At that point, we come under the sin nature control. At that point, we can react to the personal sin and we can go to the area of strength, which is human good, and operate on our own self-righteousness. And there's nothing harder to get past than a self-righteous believer. I would rather have a whole church of overt sinners than a church of self-righteous believers because they're in such self-deception and so, uh, that they don't have a clue what, what reality is, and it's very hard to deal with. That's why Jesus was constantly confronting the Pharisees, and they were reacting to him, is because they could not look at themselves with any kind of objectivity, and they were operating on the, the strength that they were really good people. And so there's a deceptiveness to human good. Now, at the very core of our sin nature is the motivator of the sin nature, and that's the lust pattern. And there are various lusts. Now, we can operate on them individually or in various combinations. For simplicity of class, we'll just talk about them, one or two of them individually. 
There's approbation lust, which is the desire for approval, to find somebody to pat you on the back, to always tell you what a good job you're doing, how wonderful you are, how good you are, how kind you are, always seeking approval of people. You run into this a lot of times in local churches where people always want to get a little pat on the back from the pastor so that they can can go on about their life. They're operating on approbation lust. Then you have power lust. This is also another major problem in uh, local churches. You get deacons who are operating on power lust, and immediately you become engaged in a power struggle with the pastor as to who the authority in the local church is. You have money lust, revenge lust. You can certainly see how revenge lust enters in when you're in a rejection scenario. Sexual lust, social lust, chemical lust, crusader lust, inordinate ambition and inordinate competition and pleasure lust. These lusts vary in in strengths and and in in degree with various people and they always go towards a direction of a trend in each individual soul. You can trend towards asceticism and legalism. Now, if your trend is towards asceticism and legalism, you probably operate very well on the area of strength and human good. Those tend to go together. On the other hand, you can trend towards antinomianism, licentiousness, and lasciviousness. You major in overt sins, so the person who operates in his area of weakness most of the time in personal sins probably trends towards antinomianism and lasciviousness. Now, let's look at this and take it apart very logically and see what happens. If you're reacting from your sin nature, you're going to react from either the area of weakness or the area of strength. If you operate from the area of weakness, you're going to produce mental attitude sins of anger, hatred, bitterness, fear, worry, anxiety, jealousy, or any combination of the, of the above. That's how you're going to handle or try to handle the problem. See, this is what happens. Whenever you're faced, whoever you are, if you're a believer, you have two options. If you're an unbeliever, you only have one option, and that's the sin nature. But we're going to deal with the believer. He has one option, and that are two options, either application of doctrine or sin nature control. If he takes sin nature control, he's either going to respond, try to solve the problem through personal sins, or he's going to try to solve the problem through human good. Through personal sins, you have mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, judging, public lies. Somebody rejects you, you react by gossiping about them. You run them down. If I run them down and destroy their reputation, then somehow that will build me up. But you can never build yourself up on the destruction of others. And this is a principle that carries over into ministry. I've seen this happen. Our ministers try to do this time and time again to build their ministry by tearing down the ministry of somebody else. And it never works. You cannot build yourself up on the basis of the misery of somebody else or by running down someone else. Or you may try to solve the problem through overt sins such as physical violence, murder, or assault. If you operate from the other option, which is the area of strength, then you're going to try to resolve your your problems, resolve the rejection scenario through human good. Therefore, you're going to use a lot of good deeds. You're going to major in morality. Whatever your solution is, it's going to be the moral solution and the socially acceptable and, might I say, the politically correct solution. It's going to look good to everybody around because the last thing you want is is that somebody might judge you for having done it the wrong way and you don't want to be rejected by anybody else, so you're going to make sure that you look good in the process. The area of strength produces human good solutions. These will involve a mix of establishment principles and human viewpoint thinking. That's where it gets real fuzzy. See, establishment principles are principles of morality God gave to the entire human race, believer and unbeliever alike, for the perpetuation, stability, and protection of the human race. When you start mixing establishment principles with human viewpoint psychology... There's always a mix. Any system that seems to work or have a pragmatic value always has a certain amount of truth in it. Remember, it's not the 90% pure water that hurts. It's the 10% cyanide that's going to get you. Just because protein is good for you and your body needs protein doesn't mean you should go out and drink rattlesnake venom because it's 100% protein. 
You know, I always hear Christians say, well, you know, I read this book and it was really helpful. I'm not going to mention any right now, but you know, they're all the self-help books. The books that are popular for managers to read. Everything from the one-minute manager to who knows what. And there's all these pop psychology books out there that people go to. And they say, well, there's a lot of good principles in there. Well, you know, there's a lot of good principles in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Book of Mormon and in the uh, Koran. But I don't want anybody reading any of those books because you're going to get a lot of error subtly mixed in with the truth that's there. Satan is a master at counterfeiting the truth. And what makes a good counterfeit is that it has a large amount of truth to make it credible and a small amount of error. But I don't care whether the amount of error is 1% or 99%. It's just as wrong and is just as destructive to the spiritual life. So it doesn't matter how moral the solution is. It doesn't matter how good it is. If it's flowing from the sin nature and the area of strength, it eventually will, make, will be self-destructive and fragment the soul. It may make you functional. I remember getting in some discussions years ago with some believers, and we were talking about psychology and whether psychology was, was beneficial. And they said, well, it's good. We ought to send people to counseling. They have marriage problems. They have this problem. They need to go to counseling and therapy. At least it will make them functional. And I said, the goal of ministry, when your job is to articulate and communicate the principles of God's Word, is not to make people functional. It is to make people spiritually mature. And if somebody makes their life functional, on any basis other than the grace of God and His provision, then they will be deceived into thinking that they are somebody and they can make their life work and find happiness apart from God. And I can't think of anything more damning and more destructive than to make somebody think their life is functional and they can have happiness apart from God. J. Adams said it well in a book he wrote on self-esteem. A lot of people react to it. You may react to it. He said, I would rather have somebody stay and die muddy drunk in the streets than to give them an ounce of hope that they can solve their problems on anything other than exclusive dependence on God. Now that's what faith is all about. That's what doctrine's all about. That our life really can't work apart from God because God designed that it wouldn't. God's design is that the only way to have stability and happiness in life is if we are completely, radically dependent upon God. When God's Word is more real to us than our situation, than our experience, than our heartaches, rejections, suffering, when God's Word is more real to us than our experience, that's when we're trusting God. And that's what the issue is. What's more important in your life, the Word of God or your experience? All reactions from the sin nature then are going to be motivated by the lust patterns. So we have already reviewed the lust patterns. So the lust patterns are going to motivate you towards either human good or personal sin. And you're going to trend towards asceticism or you're going to trend towards antinomianism. Let's look at how this works. In the pathology of response to rejection, I want you to see and understand that the quality... I want you to see and understand how evil and destructive the sin nature is here. And one of the ways that victim psychology has infiltrated Christianity is through the so-called deliverance ministry. You know what deliverance ministry is? That it's not really your problem. You've got a demon. This demon is bothering you. You've got a, a spirit of bitterness. And they take that word spirit to refer to an, an individual creature, an angel or a demon. Or you've got a spirit of anger and you just have to have that spirit of anger dealt with. Except the word pneuma, which is the original Greek for spirit, can refer to an angel. It can refer to the human spirit. It can refer to the Holy Spirit. And it can refer to an attitude or a mindset. And so when the scripture talks about a spirit of bitterness, it's not talking about a demon. It's not identifying a demon who's responsible for producing bitterness in people. How absurd it's talking about an attitude, a mindset, a sin of bitterness. But what happens with these deliverance ministries is it's not your fault, it's the devil's fault. Never forget the old Flip Wilson routine. It's 
The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And you have hundreds of thousands of Christians in this country running around, attending these churches, casting out demons because it's not, they don't recognize the inherent evil of their own sin nature. And it's their sin nature that's the problem and the only solution is the filling of the Holy Spirit and learning doctrine and applying it in their situation. So we must come back to focusing on personal responsibility. See, our society's rejected personal responsibility through psychology. It's your parents' fault or it's genetic or anything, but it's your fault. You've made bad decisions and bad choices. Well, the Christian community always reflects the dominant themes of the world outside. And so what we have in these churches is the same victimization mentality. It's not your fault. It's not the result of your sin nature and bad decisions. It's the devil's fault. And Satan has more to do and take care of than to be concerned about anybody's life in this church. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is a finite creature. And Satan is limited in what he can do. And Satan knows that that your sin nature is capable of just as much evil and destruction as the sin nature in any of his demons. You see, the only difference between the quality of evil in your sin nature and the quality of evil in Satan's sin nature is that he's a creature that has tremendous amount of, uh, tremendous more power and intelligence than you. Your sin nature is just limited because you're, you're, you're more limited and you're not quite as smart. But if you were smarter and you had more physical power, you'd be just as evil as Satan or you have the potential to be just as evil and wicked as Satan. And remember, Satan really doesn't want to promote what we think of as evil in terms of its destructive, horrible effects because he wants everybody to follow him. He wants people to think that he's good and he can provide happiness and stability. So he really wants to stay away from that negative, dark image and promote himself as a minister of light, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan and his demons continually go around masquerading as, as an angel of light and as ministers of righteousness. They are the greatest deceivers in all of history and the greatest counterfeiters. But it's not the devil that's after you that's the problem. It's your own sin nature and how you respond or react to the adversities in life. So let's take take a scenario. The scenario that we find here in James. The situation is that there's a rejection going on and and the response is going to be motivated by approbation lust. They want the approval of the rich guy, the guy who's oppressing them. They They want to get his approval. They want to please him. They want to get out from under this negative reaction and this persecution and oppression. They want acceptance. So they want to uh, kowtow to the uh, rich guy who's been oppressing them and dragging them into court. And so they're going to show partiality to him. They're going to try to butter him up. They're going to provide for him. When he comes to church, they're going to sit him in the seat of honor. They're going to make him feel special and make him feel important. They've lost all objectivity of the situation. This is why grace orientation must precede the development of impersonal love. Grace orientation involves a number of factors other than just learning what grace is. Remember, grace means starts at salvation. God does all the work and man simply accepts it. Man believes and trusts Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Now, the result of that is that you realize what you're really like. Not to disparage you and how wonderful you are and what a scintillating personality you are, but basically in the scheme of things, you and I are nothing. Now, that doesn't sit well with the uh, psychology of self-esteem, but that's nevertheless what God's Word says, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That we're basically nothing, and we have to have an honest view of ourselves that everything good is from God and everything evil is from our sin nature. So the only way we're ever going to start having an honest view of ourselves and any level of objectivity is to start looking at our lives as God looks at us. So that's where objectivity begins. So we begin to have a little objectivity as a result of grace orientation. 
Furthermore, grace orientation then promotes humility. We have to realize that it's up to God and not up to us and our efforts. So grace orientation then develops humility. And as a result of that, it also promotes teachability. Both of these are related to authority orientation towards God. We realize that God's the one in charge and He's told us how things are. Whether we like it or not, we have to conform to His will and His standard. So as we develop uh, uh, humility and teachability and develop authority orientation, another thing that's developed in grace orientation is a relaxed mental attitude. When you're a legalist and somebody says hell or damn or tells a dirty joke or cracks open a beer, you immediately get uptight. Somebody rejects you and somebody gets angry and there's some kind of intense uh, conflict or something, you get uptight and your cage is rattled. But when you're relaxed in the plan of God and you're under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you're going to relax. You, you're not going to respond in hostility and anger. A relaxed mental attitude is evidenced by a lack of mental attitude sense. You're relaxed. You're not going to fly off the handle. You're not going to let emotion take control of the soul. You are relaxed under Bible doctrine, which is stabilizing your soul. Now, you have to get all of these in place to a certain degree before you can really start advancing in impersonal love. Impersonal love emphasizes sort of the passive side of this, which is an absence of mental attitude sins. In the Old Testament, this royal law was not called a royal law. It's found in Leviticus 19.18, and it was designed for all members of Israel, believer and unbeliever alike. But they couldn't apply it consistently and deeply. When you come into the New Testament, it is reiterated as part of the royal law and is the mandated for every believer. And it can only be applied and only fulfilled under the filling of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's impersonal love. You can't manufacture it on your own. What we see when we get into the New Testament, we find that there's more to impersonal love than the negative, the, the passive side, the absence of mental attitude sins. But there is an overt engagement in doing what is good for the person who rejects you. The person rejects you, insults you, and your feelings are hurt. If you're operating on doctrine, you immediately realize that's not an issue. You're not going to get caught up in subjectivity. You're going to do something good for that person. This is the story that Jesus used of the Good Samaritan, where you see the person who has mistreated you and abused you, and you're going to give them whatever they need, even if they want the shirt off your back, give them the shirt and the coat. You go an extra mile in terms of helping them. There is an aggressiveness to impersonal love. It is what we see in Christ, or in God's impersonal love towards mankind that He sent His Son. There's aggression there. There's initiative. There is a commitment to do what is best no matter what it might cost you in the process. Because your focus is not on me and how I'm hurt and how I can lose out in this situation. Your focus is on who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, and you're actively engaged in following that model. So, impersonal love for all mankind is is an advanced problem-solving device, and in order to apply it, it must be preceded by several stages of grace orientation. We must remember that love is a thinking concept, not an emoting concept. So as soon as a rejection scenario begins, you have to stop and say, what do I do? How do I respond? You have to start thinking and stop emoting. Because the issue in the Christian life is thought, not emotion. You see, all of these stress busters are, the ten stress busters are all spiritual skills. Now think about that in terms of what you do at work. Whether you're a musician an artist, whether you are a craftsman, whether you work with tools, whether you're a carpenter or plumber, 
you had to learn certain skills in your trade in order to do what you do. Now, when you first started learning those skills, they did not come easily to you. You hit your thumb with the hammer half the time. You never knew what screwdriver to use and you were leaving stuff around and you had all kinds of problems and it was unnatural. But as time went on, as you learned that you had to think about what you were doing so you didn't cut something off or, or destroy the project you were working on, if you're, a, if you're a musician, you began to realize you have to take care of your instrument a certain way. And that applies to your voice if you're a singer. And that there are certain techniques that you have to work on. I hated that. When I was in high school and I was in the band, I played the trombone, and we would have to go in for a certain number of time after school every week and just play these exercises called technique. And you just worked on it, up and down the scale, and all kinds of different different uh, combinations of notes and runs because as you improved your technique and worked on those basic techniques, then when you got out with the band and you played new music, it improved your ability. Now, when you're out there and you're playing through, you hear a symphony playing a song, what you hear is a beautiful work of art. Everything flows together and matches. Yet each person up there is counting. One, two, three, four, all the way through. And they're following their music. And they're concentrating on technique and the mechanics. But that doesn't make the result mechanical or artificial. See, this is what happens when you start talking about this in terms of techniques, the spiritual life in terms of techniques and mechanics. There's always somebody who really hasn't thought much about life. And they say, well, you're just making the spiritual life mechanical. Not at all. I mean, I even heard it the other day in an aerobics class. Now, we're going to learn a new movement. Let's focus on the mechanics. And once we get the mechanics down, then we'll do the movement. I mean, everybody recognizes that to do anything well in life, you start with the mechanics. You break it down into its component parts. You practice your techniques over and over again. You have to think. You have to concentrate. You have to focus. So that when you get in a test situation, you stop and you think, what doctrine applies here? Is this going to be faith, rest, drill? What's the promise I'm going to claim? Am I going to claim a doctrinal rationale? Which one is it going to be? Do I exercise impersonal love for all mankind? How does personal sense of eternal destiny come into play here? What about personal love for God? How does that relate here? How am I going to apply that? And you stop and you think and you apply these principles each time and now you are becoming a doer of the Word, an applier of the Word. And you're thinking, thinking, thinking. And at first it seems awkward. And you feel like you're distracted from life because you're constantly thinking about what do I do here in terms of my spiritual life? But the more you practice it, the more you apply it, the more natural that response becomes until it becomes ingrained in your response. And that's what spiritual, how spiritual growth and spiritual maturity takes place. You have to practice these skills. Now, you all have heard the old adage, practice makes perfect. Well, that's wrong. Perfect practice makes perfect. Now, here we have a scenario where we have a person who's the congregation is seeking, is operating on approbation lust, and so they are seeking the approval of this individual. Now, rather than reacting, letting their approbation lust drive them through personal sins towards the guy, the approbation lust is driving them towards human good. They're going to be nice to him, they're going to kill him with kindness. They're going to see him in the place of honor. They're going to treat him with respect. But it's all human good. It's all fraudulent. It's not going to solve the problem. The same thing happens in a situation where somebody operates on power lust. They come under a situation where they're, they're rejected. So now they have to gain power over that other person. And let's say they're into antinomianism or licentiousness, and they're going to be motivated by power lust, and so they're going to let that drive them towards sins of the tongue, and they're going to start spreading the, the public lie about this individual in order to run them down and make them look unimportant and inconsequential. Now, it may, might seem to work, and we all can think of scenarios in our life when this seemed to work 
and the person advanced. But they're advancing in a way that ultimately will destroy them and there will be no happiness. So we have to think of these things in terms of how the sin nature is operating in terms of the lust patterns, moving towards human good, moving towards personal sins. And parents, just a hint, your lovely children have incredible sin natures. And if you think about their behavior, you're probably aware by the time they're five just exactly what their trends are. You know what their lusts are. And you know which ones have a trend towards legalism and which ones have a trend towards licentiousness. And this can help you in some ways. Now, all of this explains for you the complexities of the sin nature. But you don't need to go through some kind of tortured self-analysis in order to figure out how to solve the problem. See, that's the psychological method, is you have to figure out what your cause is. Go back in life. Find out all of these things. All you need to be aware of is that you have certain tendencies. And the solution for the believer is, first of all, to recognize and admit the sin. Because once you have reacted, you're under sin nature control and you can't solve the problem at all and it's going to just compound into stress until you deal with it through confession. So the first solution is confession and then move on through learning and applying doctrine. And then you have to make, in that process of learning doctrine, you have to make doctrine the vital part of your soul. So you go through the grace learning spiral until that doctrine becomes epinosis, then it's on this. Then it is applicable doctrine. But you have to make a decision in each scenario to apply it. And as you do that, you are transformed. You begin to realize that you've had a habit pattern of always dealing with rejection a certain way and reacting emotionally. So now you, that the, the mirror of God's Word has revealed that to you, you have to have the humility to accept it and you have to have the objectivity to be honest about it. So now you have to make a conscientious effort to unlearn the old bad habits based upon sin nature patterns and retrain yourself on the basis of doctrine to operate and to utilize these new spiritual skills and techniques so that you can advance in the spiritual life. That takes concentration. It takes focus. It takes thinking, thinking, thinking. That's why these... Christians who spend all this time emoting and focusing on the emotional side of life don't go anywhere in the spiritual life. And when the crisis comes, they fall apart because they don't realize that they have to think that the spiritual life is a life of thinking, not a life of emoting. So the issue for the believer is never, how did I get this way? Whose fault is it? But the issue is letting the mirror of God's Word developed true objectivity in their soul. Now, that concludes our study on impersonal love and, and uh, uh, the royal law in that area. Next week, I'm going to come back and we're going to begin to exegete through the next four or five verses. And what we're going to see is how clearly the Bible portrays it as operating in either one arena or another. Now, some of you are aware of this because of some things that have happened this last year. But what's become popular today is to think that spirituality is a continuum. That at any point you may be operating, let's say, 20% on the spirit and 80% on the sin nature. And the goal is to get to the point where you reverse this and you're operating 80% on the Spirit and 20% on the sin nature, and everything's a continuum. But the thing that is impressing me, and it should impress you, and I want you to pay attention to, as we go through Galatians and as we're going through James in the next few weeks, is that over and again we see that there is a contrast. You're either operating on the flesh, or you're operating on the Holy Spirit. You are either applying the Word completely, 100%, or if you sin in the least little way, you're violating the whole law. You're either a slave or you're free. You're either, in, uh, you're either acting like a child of God, a son with freedom, or you're acting like a slave. 
a servant. There's one of two options. Never does Paul indicate that you can be, for example, in Galatians, that you can be acting sort of like a son and partially like a servant. It's one or the other. And nobody's pointing this out. And I think that this is one of the crucial issues in understanding spirituality today is that you either are or you're not. That this is referring to an absolute status and not a relative condition. And so if you're, you're trying to decide whether you're operating on the flesh or the spirit and that the flesh can produce a tremendous amount of what looks like good and it can produce morality and people are coming along and identifying that as spiritual, how do you know? If it can be produced by the flesh, how do you know whether it's the flesh or the spirit? You have to have some way of knowing where you are and who's in control of your life or what's in control of your life. The Holy Spirit of the flesh. And this is why 1 John 1.9 is so important because that's the means of turning from sin nature to Holy Spirit control. And so we're going to see that exemplified and then we'll get into that fun passage starting in verse 14, the relationship of faith and works. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the perspicacity of Your Word that illuminates every aspect of our being, our thinking, our motivation so that we can see how we yield ourselves to sin nature control rather than control the Holy Spirit. Father, the issues are very simple. It's simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then it is to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. The issue is not what was done wrong to us in the past, but it's how we're going to make right decisions based on Bible doctrine in the future. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we've studied tonight and apply them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.